I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which I create Goodwill Hunters, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to the third episode in our leadership series of Goodwill Hunters. I'm Rachel Mason-Nunn and I'm the founder and host of Goodwill Hunters. Your response to our first two episodes has been huge. This topic is clearly resonating with you and it's so special to receive messages and emails from many of you about your own experience on your leadership journey. In particular, I've received messages about the need to invest more in leadership development for young women, particularly young women of colour, and the need for more horizontal networking for aspiring leaders in the development sector. Just some thoughts to ponder as you listen to today's episode. Today I'm speaking to Giles Gunasekra. Like our previous guest, Jackie DeLacy, Giles has also been on Goodwill Hunters before, several years ago now. Giles is the founder and CEO of the Global Impact Initiative and has over 25 years of experience building teams and businesses which solve global challenges. In this episode, Giles and I discuss the impact of being a first-generation migrant in Australia on Giles' leadership style, encompassing resilience, tenacity and persistence. We talk about diversity and how the aspiration for greater diversity amongst boards isn't yet translating into the board landscape we see today. And we talk about why your leadership pipeline is as important as your leadership team. This episode contains some really specific skills that we as leaders can look to develop. Like all of the episodes in this series, I hope this is a useful, practical discussion of what it takes to be a remarkable leader in a purpose-driven organisation. Now it's over to Giles Gunasekra on Goodwill Hunters. Okay, Giles, welcome back to your second appearance on Goodwill Hunters. Thanks for coming back. Thanks, Rachel. It's been a been a few years in between, but uh, been a uh, avid listener of the podcast, and it's been wonderful to see uh, how it's progressed um, over the last few years. So, congratulations to to you and the team. Oh, thank you. And it's nice to be at a stage where we're having guests return for their second appearance to catch up on everything that's happened. And last week on the show, we had Jackie DeLacy for her second appearance. And I said that she was a real fan favorite. And so were you. Your first episode was very well received. So no pressure. (laughs) Thanks, Rachel. Yes, no pressure at all. So today, um, I wanted to start by talking to you about your uh, the experiences that help shape your leadership style because you are a a very formidable leader now and have a a great reputation across the impact investment development spaces as as a real inspiring leader so how throughout your childhood and you know your teenage years did your leadership style develop yeah great question to uh to kick off with the the main thing for me, uh, you know, looking back was, you know, I started volunteering very early. Uh, you know, my first voluntary uh, role experience was delivering Meals on Wheels with my mum at the age of seven. Uh, you know, that was the way that we spent, you know, uh, a part of the school holidays. Uh, we used to do that uh, once or twice a week uh, during the school holidays. And, um, you know, it was really great. Uh, one, being able to do that initially, it was a bit of an imposition on my quality, you know, school holiday time. 
Um, but, you know, but I, I really, you know, enjoyed it. You know, one, it was an opportunity to spend, you know, quality time with my mum. Uh, it was also an opportunity to see how she dealt with different people. Um, and for those of you out there that have delivered Meals on Wheels, there's a whole, um, yeah, it's a, a big variety of people that you're delivering Meals on Wheels to. You're delivering uh, to people that look, you know, um, you know that, that are wealthy um, or maybe look wealthy. Uh, there's people that are, um, uh, you know, uh, let's say a little bit cranky uh, because things just haven't gone their way um, and haven't gone their way for a long time. There are people that are really appreciative. Um, there's a whole range of, 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 of different experiences that you go through um, when you're when you're when you're doing that, but also seeing how people react to that, and you know how I saw my mum react to that was just very consistent. You know, treating everyone with respect, um, being very humble about it, um, and ultimately, you know, getting that in return. So those cranky people eventually, you know, became a little bit, you know, friendlier. Um, uh, so it was a really great, you know, experience watching and observing that, and and hopefully, you know, yeah, hopefully also um, actualizing some of those behaviors as well and so my um i guess my leadership style you know from from there has really evolved to um well one always getting involved in organizations where there was a personal resonance for me uh you know growing up as a first generation uh, migrant in australia like i was for a lot of first generation migrants was, was not easy uh, you know, we, uh, you know, we, I was born in New Zealand, but I moved to, we moved to Australia when I was, you know, when I was two um, and grew up in a very white uh, Anglo-Saxon um, area of Victoria in the Mornington Peninsula. Um, so, you know, school days, childhood wasn't um, especially easy. I was, uh, I think in my primary school, there were two non-Anglo-Saxons. There was me and there was an Italian guy. Um uh, and, you know, so experience from a very early age, you know, literally on my first day of school, you know, racism, bullying, harassment. Um, and that really, um, I guess, helped me in a lot of ways think about, well, what's important? How am I going to deal with this? Um, you know, as a first generation migrant, you are taught, um, you know, from a very early age that you're really lucky uh, and you need to take the opportunities that are given to you and just try to deflect as much as possible, those that racism. Um, and from that, uh, you know, that then led me into, you know, volunteering for organisations like Amnesty International and World Vision, where, um, you know, I was able to then, um, in my own way, help people that were in a less fortunate position than I. So, you know, as a first generation Australian, as I said, you know, you are, it's really honed into you that you are fortunate, you're lucky, and you are you know, to be in a country like Australia, um, putting aside, you know, the other things that happen in terms of the racism and the harassment and the bullying, which, you know, pleasingly do dissipate over time, uh, usually for, for a lot of people. Um, but it's always there in, 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 in some shape or form and it, and it continues, you know, to this day, you know, in my, in, in my day to day, but it's probably more, uh, well, not probably, it's more subvert than overt. Um, and so, you know, Learning, learning those lessons from my mum, you know, working on causes and, and projects uh, and working with organisations uh, that were helping others was, was really, really helpful uh, to my leadership style. And, and ultimately, what really helped my 
leadership style was my first ever uh, management role. And that was, you know, at the age of 22, I was thrust into this job of um, being the very glorious title of the staff development manager um, of a 70-seat call centre uh, at that time uh, working for Colonial. Uh, and I was literally a year out of uni. Um, you know, I was so surprised that I got this job. It was, you know, there was probably about 10 other people immediately around me that were going for this job. You know, it was a really, um, you know, important job. And I got it. And I was, I was probably the most inexperienced in terms of, um, in terms of my experience in the workforce at, at that time. And I remember saying to my boss, I said, why have you, how did I get this job? <laughs> and, they said, and she said, well, you had the best experience. And I said, I've only been here, I've been here less time than everyone else. She said, yes, but your voluntary experience that you've had and the organisations that you work for and, and what, you, what you're able to bring into this role from outside the workforce, we see as much more valuable uh, than, you know, spending time, uh, you know, uh, on the floor or, in, or you know, in, a, in a previous job. So that was that was super exciting, and that was an ability to um, you know to really um, uh, you know harness that experience that we had um, you know that I'd had in the voluntary sector, and the specific experience that I had in the in the voluntary sector was that that was relevant for that role was I was in the cadets since the age of um, since the age of ten, um, the Air Force cadets, um, you know, learning about aviation learning, um, uh, you know, drill and marching uh, and then teaching uh, cadets and, and fellow cadets, you know, how to do that. So I had from the age of 12 to 22 all this experience of, of teaching, um, mentoring, you know, helping others um, and, yeah, was able to use that, you know, so-called voluntary experience, which, which felt like a full-time role at times, um, into, into, my, into my first job. And uh, you know, getting that opportunity was fantastic, but, you know, also getting that opportunity from my first two leaders were female um, and they were incredible. And I've been absolutely blessed to have, you know, amazing leaders, but, but those two females that I had, uh, and I'm, I, re I really want to name them because they've just been so inspirational to me, uh, Prue Green and Kelly Tatlow, um, you know, what they did for me was, you know, say to me, you know, through their words, through their actions, you know, uh, we trust you, we respect you, um, off you go and do your job. Um, and I've been really fortunate to have other leaders that have treated me um, in exactly the same way, um, which has been, yeah, really great, um, you know, for, for my career um, because I've, I've uh, responded well to that. Uh, but hopefully it's been, you know, good, good from an organisation perspective because I've tried to then... Um, you know, translate those values, you know, into my teams, into my staff that I've that I've managed and led. Wow. Uh, it's a really fascinating journey that you've had. And one thread I want to pick up on is about that experience of being um, a first generation Australian. And it's something I've read a lot about, actually, is first generation migrants going on to have really incredible journeys in corporate Australia and talking a lot about their formative experiences and how it instilled resilience, humility, tenacity, some other really specific leadership qualities that the, that, that migrant experience seems to lend itself to. Is Does that resonate with you? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, 
resilience, tenacity are the two things that, you know, we all as people, um, you know, whether we're first generation migrants or not, um, we all as people constantly need to, you know, need to call on, need to pull on. Um, and, you know, when you're getting bullied and harassed, you know, at an early age, you, you know, it, it's fight or flight type stuff. You know, you either, um, you either fight it or, 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 or you flight it. Um, I remember my dad saying to me at a very early age, he used to say, oh, Giles, people say nasty things because, you know, they just don't understand. Um, or, you know, people say nasty things because they're not educated and, you know, or they've been brought up that way. And, and you know, so as difficult as it is, you know, ba- you know basically he was saying, try not to take it personally, <laughs> but, you know, um, it's it's not their fault. Um, and to a degree, I, I you know, well, I, I, I do you know, subscribe to that. I think, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, generational change that we've seen. There's been greater eras of understanding. Um, but, you know, that also comes from surrounding yourself with people from, from different backgrounds and experiences. And that was that's the benefit that I've had, particularly volunteering for a lot of not-for-profit boards. You know, so my, my background in, in funds management was, was always, you know, I was always around you know, white Anglo-Saxon males, you know, over the age of 50, uh, 50 and 60. Um, and in my not-for-profit world, I'm, I'm always and continue to be around largely female boards um, with diverse backgrounds um, in terms of everything, in terms of ethnic background, um, you know, sexual orientation um, and also age. You know, Amnesty International board that I was on for eight years, we had a 14-person board, we had, um, I think, eighty percent of the board. Eighty percent of the board was female, uh, but the age, um, the age mix was twenty-one to sixty-five. Um, so it was a great learning experience. We also had a, a process as a board that we made decisions by consensus. Um, so it wasn't a traditional, you know, kind of business majority rule. Um, we only went to majority if we couldn't get consensus within a meaningful kind of time frame. But in my eight years on the board, we I, I don't recall any decisions that weren't done by consensus. And so, you know, that that helps, you know, in, in so many ways, you know, it helps you in your communication. Uh, it helps you in your listening. Um, but most importantly, it helps you in understanding and understanding people with diverse backgrounds bring very unique uh, perspectives. And it's important to listen, uh, but it's really important to, you know, to surround yourself um, with those diverse perspectives and interests and opinions um, in order to make better decisions. Yeah, I think the point on diversity is a really crucial one. And we spoke about this a few weeks ago when we had a coffee in the city, when we both reflected on the fact that there continues to be a real lack of diversity on corporate mm. boards in Australia. Mm. And that's not despite a lack of awareness raising and advocacy and campaigning, in my view. Like, I think, I, I, I think at least from where I'm sitting, we talk a lot about diversity. Mm-hmm. And I think the merits of diversity are increasingly well understood. And yet that's not quite translating mm. into how our corporate board landscape looks, is it? No, no, definitely not, Rachel. It's, um, I, I remember we did a study um, about five, six years ago, looking at, you know, the top 100 listed companies in Australia. You know, we were in the process of putting together um, a gender equality fund 
And so one of the things obviously looking at was, you know, what's the what's the gender representation, you know, across um, across listed company boards. Now, obviously, that's improved, but, um, you know, five years ago, it was, it was kind of a long way where we are today um, and still not ideally where we want to be, but at least there's there's positive movement. But I remember, think, uh, remember looking and being asked questions around, okay, well, what about broader diversity? And, and my view has always been, you know, we need to first attack the issue of the gender inequality gap because, there is 50% off the workforce and off the community that don't get the same opportunities as the other 50%. So let's start with that 50% and then we can talk about broader diversity. Um, but when we looked at, for example, the top 100 companies in Australia, as I said, this is five to six years ago, um, out of the top 100 companies, you know, let's just say approximately, let's just say for, for round numbers, there's, there's 10 people on, on each of those boards. Um, so 100, 100 companies, you know, 10 people, that, that's 1,000 people roughly. Um, there was less than 10 people um, out of that total of 1,000, there was less than 10 people of a Southeast Asian, um, Chinese, um, uh, non-Anglo-Saxon background, but particularly we looked at Southeast Asian and uh, Southeast Asian and, and subcontinental backgrounds. Um, and that was really frightening to, to, to see and to witness because, you know, here we are in Australia um, on the doorstep of China and India, two of the biggest populations in the world, two of the biggest economies in the world, um, and the country has prospered, um, you know, in you know, in, in spite of, um, you know, in, in spite of our lack of diversity on those boards. But could you imagine what would have happened if we actually had proper diversity on those boards. And if we had people from the subcontinent actually, you know, representing um, and providing a viewpoint from, you know, from, from a different race, um, you know, sitting on those boards that was able to input, you know, th their, their decision. Now, that person with a subcontinental background, you know, may have grown up in Australia, you know, like me, but um, it doesn't mean that they can't provide, you know, a cultural perspective and a cultural background. It doesn't mean that they can't provide you know, contacts and connections and context to people that don't come from that background. So, um, yes, there's, there's a lot more to do. I mean, sadly, you know, what we've, what we've, what we've seen in terms of diversity here in, 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 in terms of board representation in Australia is, you know, what used to happen in the 80s and 90s was, you know, the same group of, um, you know, white men would be on multiple boards. So it's basically, you know, I'm on BHP, I'm going to get my mate that I'm on the board with at, at NAB and let's get, you know, we'll bring him onto the board here at BHP. So you had, you know, very, very few uh, people in very, very high positions across different sectors. Um, and now, sadly, you're starting to see that um, as well on with, with female directors where, you know, really talented, you know, super intelligent, um, you know, su super experienced females, um, but a very, very small group of them appearing on, on multiple boards. And that's, you know, the next step that we have to do is obviously increase that representation. You know, what's really um, disappointing is we just don't have that age representation across boards. And age representation brings a different perspective in terms of, you know, just generations, you know, different generations thinking differently uh, to others. Um, you know, somehow, somehow, you know, corporate boards and, and not-for-profit boards as well seem to think that, you know, you can only be a board director, you know, if you've, you know, if you're 40 plus or you're 50 plus. In actual fact, we should be embracing 
you know, the younger generation, um, you know, to to occupy seats and to to go for seats on boards because they bring a very different perspective. Yeah. It's in, it's interesting when you talk about that board culture of the 80s where it was very much about who you know and it was a small group of mm. friends, say, who were appointing one another to boards. How much has that changed really? Not much in short. Yeah, not much. There is still a lot of, you know, job, uh, a, lot, a lot of board appointments that get done through relationships um and through you know um through appointments you know through direct appointments um the same with jobs you know jobs um are given to people where people know the school they've gone to or they know their father or they know someone in their family um you know there's there's still an independent process um in quotations in in terms of the um you know how the interview is done in that process uh but ultimately you know relationships do get you a long way so you know, this is the challenge if you are a minority, if you're on the outside um, of, of getting those board positions and, you know, speaking from experience. I mean, I had 30 years of voluntary and board experience before I got my first listed company, um, you know, role. And it was only this year in, in two, uh, 2022. Um, and that was, um, my, that was uh, one uh, on a board that I was really interested in the space that they're in, but I also uh, knew people on those, uh, on those boards as well. So I got approached, um, you know, and I went through an interview process and there was lots of, you know, other candidates, you know, in that process. Uh, but, you know, had I had those people not approached me, maybe I wouldn't have, you know, got that opportunity or maybe I would have. Um, and there's also you know, aren't other barriers out there, Rachel, like, um, you know, a lot of companies wanting people that have, for example, AICD, you know, to be a member of AICD and and, and not saying that AICD is, is not a qualification or, or an association that you don't want to belong to. I think it's a, it's a great organisation, um, but there's also barriers in, in getting into AICD and, and, and that discriminates against women, against minorities, because... You know, it's a high cost of entry to get into an AICD, um, you know, course. Um, not everyone can afford it. Um, you know, so you are automatically, particularly listed companies, are automatically putting up barriers uh, to people by, you know, from a governance perspective saying, you know, we need people to go through an AICD course. But then, you know, from an inclusion and accessibility uh, perspective, it's not always available. And I look at my experience, <clears throat> excuse me, of being on the board of Amnesty International, you know, in eight years, we went from 2 million turnover to 30 million turnover. Um, on a, one of the other boards that I've been on, you know, that's gone from 4 million to 50 million in a short space of time. So, and, you know, I've been responsible for the audit and risk committee and the remuneration committee and, and, and different organisations. So that level of growth and that experience that I've had in the not-for-profit sector are easily translatable uh, to the for-profit sector. Uh, to the corporate sector, to the listed companies, um, in addition to my experience in funds management and impact investing and, and, and running my own business and, and founding my own business. So all those components are, are relevant, but I don't fit within a very neat box, I guess, of, um, of what people, I guess, traditionally look for when they're looking for a, for a board director. So yes, relationships continue to be important and I, 
and that's something that any aspiring board director needs to continue to harness. But what I'd really like to see is some of these um, barriers to entry um, that, that are there, which, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, are, are there for the right reasons, but also by virtue of being there, just don't promote um, inclusion and, and equity. Mm. It's topical that you mentioned earlier um, board directors from Southeast Asia and China as well, and it's something I've been reflecting on. When we look at the biggest challenges, not just facing our international development sector, but facing Australian companies working internationally in general, a lot of it does come down to the very complex geopolitical contestations that Australia finds itself in, in this this landscape of really fragmented, tricky relationships with with a range of different actors. And as you were talking about board directors um, from Southeast Asia, from China, I was struck by the need for that sort of diversity in tackling these issues, which are rooted in cultural and geographical um, trends, right? Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, the international development sector is a really good um, example there in that um, it's changing, you know, the the, the level of and, and the amount of money out there for international development across the world is is reducing, um, but it's, a time, it's at a time when it probably needs to be increasing because of the increased, you know, geopolitical risks um, that are out there, uh, but also the increase in inequality gap that, that continues. And we've seen you know, COVID has really, you know, continued to highlight, you know, that inequality gap where, you know, we've had a very small subset of the business world that have, you know, prospered and grown um, either as a direct result of COVID or other factors that are related to COVID. Um, but then, you know, particularly women um, at the other end, you know, the inequality gap, you know, in terms of pay, in terms of, um, you know, their, their time, their mental health, um, and, and also the impact, you know, uh, we wrote a piece uh, for COP last year on the intersectionality between, gen- between climate and gender and the fact that, you know, a poor climate and a, and a continuing poor climate will ha- continue to have a continually, continual bad um, uh, outcome for females uh, because th- they are the most affected in, in, in a poor climate environment, particularly in lower, lower socioeconomic countries. So, you know, access to food, to water, to health, uh, employment opportunities, um, you know, sanitation, et cetera, it all, um, you know, is heavily skewed in a negative way, um, you know, to women in a, in a, in a poor climate. So, um, you know, it's important that, you know, international development organisations, um, you know, think very carefully about this. Yes, everyone wants to be spending their money in the most effective way possible, but you also want to be spending your money in the most effective way possible by using all the information at your disposal. And typically that involves that human capital. Um, And that human capital is still largely untouched. You know, just all you need to do is look at the boards of these international development companies, of corporate Australia, of corporate corporate America, you know, corporates in general, we're not utilising the incredible human capital that we have um, out there and, and also thinking about it just through different lenses. And absolutely, we, you know, gender equality has to be the first and has been the first focus for a lot of companies, uh, particularly um, thinking about it from a board perspective. 
I mean, some of the work, that, you know, in the work that we do around gender equality, it's not just, um, you know, thinking about and looking at companies that we're investing in through, you know, our fund manager partners. Um, you know, we're not just thinking about the board and, and looking at the board and the diversity of that board from a, uh, you know, from a gender perspective and, and a broader perspective. We're looking at the senior management team, but we're also look, looking at the next levels down. So it's really easy to, you know, bring a female on or to bring someone, a person of colour onto your board or onto your management team and go tick, that's done. Uh, but, um, you know, how it's actually implemented and then also what the pipeline is, you know, below that is, is, is really important. And, you know, there's a lot of box ticking going on at the moment and it's across every single sector, you know. If uh, and and I and I won't mention them, but you know, mention these organisations. But if you think of the you know the arts sector is a is a really interesting one. Um, yes, there are more diverse people on stage, and you know the the the, the cast are becoming more are, are more diverse and and more representative. But the roles that those casts are given uh, that, that 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 people of colour or women are given are still not. Um, at the same level as the men, as example, as, as an example. So a lot of, uh, as an example, theatre companies can say, oh, look at our cast, you know, it's it's 80% of the cast is is female or, you know, 90% of the cast was born outside Australia, but then, you know, the two lead actors are Anglo-Saxon males or the two lead actors are, you know, one, one Anglo-Saxon male and one Anglo-Saxon female who happen to be, you know, over 50. So um, you know, it's 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 um, you've you've got to delve deeper, um, and but the delving deeper also realizes so many opportunities and so many benefits. And this is the, I guess, the beauty of coming up um, through my you know board relationships and responsibilities, coming up through the not-for-profit sector, and being able to contrast that on a day-to-day business on a day-to-day uh, perspective to to the business world. You know, the greatest learnings, the greatest experiences. Um, that I've had have been, you know, sitting on a not-for-profit board, you know, making decisions because it's been truly representative of the communities that we're representing um, as as well, as opposed to, yeah, some of the de- deliberations that, you know, that, that I've had in the, in the mm. business world. Right. So I think the key takeaways there is that your leadership pipeline is as important as your leadership team. Totally. And- that the role people have is more important than their title as leader. And if you're not actually mandating them with a, a real role, um, to use your, your arts analogy there, it, it's, you know, it's just box ticking. It's box ticking, yep, mm. exactly. I, I think to finish, I want to just pick up on the points there you made about the international development sector that we're facing rising inequality, we're facing the intersecting impacts of climate change on gender and health and education, we're facing a pandemic which continues to confuse and shock and, you know, at every turn it's a new set of challenges. Um, The word unprecedented has got to be the most overused word of the last two years, but it it is. It is truly unprecedented. What skills are required of leaders in the social sector and in the development sector to deal with all those things? What are the most important skills for leaders right now? Yeah, so back to your earlier comments, um, resilience, tenacity, uh, diversity of thought uh, and 
just thinking in a different way. So that's really easy to say, a lot harder to do. Um, pleasingly, you know, we, we see it on a day-to-day perspective in the work that we do in impact investing, because impact investing is all about, you know, how do we generate positive returns, but also create social impact at the same time. So this is something that, you know, governments want to do more of, international uh, aid organisations want to do more of, international development organisations want to do more, investors want to do more. So, um, you know, it, it really encapsulates a very, very broad, you know, market and church of people um, and, and communities of people. So the great thing that COVID has, has brought uh, is that people are much more willing to think in a different way, um, largely because they've either had to or they're now forced to. So that thinking in a different way, you can't just do with the same people, with the same people, or the same frameworks, or the same processes, and the the best and the easiest way is to bring people um, into the organisation, whether that be at a board level or an organisational level, that have that diversity of of thinking and, and 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 experience and thought, and just be willing to ask those questions and push those boundaries, because you know what's happening across all sectors, across all companies, uh, is that. Um, they have to come up with new models. You know, they, they, they have to come up with new ways of, of thinking and doing. And the best way to do that is with human capital. It's, you know, technologies, um, you know, technology can be copied, uh, products can be copied, uh, but what is really difficult to copy is, is culture. Um, and ultimately, it's people that build that culture. So if you're building a culture of diversity, inclusion, um, resilience, uh, and also just that a culture of we need to do things differently and this is the reason why, uh, you know, you're, you're really going to, you know, set your organisation up, you know, whether you're there at a board level or an organisational level, an operational level, you're really going to set your organisation up for success um, by having that broad, diverse thinking. But as I said, it's a lot easier to say, um, a lot harder to do and implement, and it is a journey. You know, you... You know, we're going through this discussion at the moment with a number of boards that I'm on where, you know, we know we don't have enough Indigenous people on our board. Uh, but we also can't bring just one person on the board and say, all right, you're now the Indigenous person on our board. You need to represent the interests of all Indigenous people right throughout Australia. And we're going to make decisions on that based on what you're providing us. You know, that is totally illogical. Um, it's irrational um, and it's not fair on that person either um, in, in that, you know, they, they represent, yes, they represent their communities, they, have their, they represent their background and their experience, but they don't represent the whole of Indigenous Australia, um, you know, and they can't. It's, it's impossible to ever get one person to do that. And that person also needs to be supported as well. So um, it, it's a bit like what we saw happen in, in boardrooms and, and, and corporate uh, yeah, in corporates, when we brought more women, um, you know, into decision-making roles onto the board, um, but, you know, some companies didn't change their decision-making processes. So, you know, a lot of these companies, you know, they, it was still the males that went to the pub after the board meeting and actually made the decisions or at the golf club or at the tennis club, and they didn't include the females. Now, obviously, that is changing, um, how it's changing, um uh, varies from company and, and sector to sector. Uh, but, yeah, we, we need to bring the diversity 
uh, we need to bring inclusion, we need to bring uh, equity, but yes, decision-making processes then need to be inclusive and representative of the people that you have um, in those positions. And you need to, to meet people where they are and not just say, well, this is the way that we make decisions. Um, you know, we used to have a two-hour board meeting and we make all our decisions in that, in that period. And if we don't, you know, bad luck. Well, if it needs to be three hours because it means that you get to workshop ideas or, you know, hear from um, other stakeholders, um, so be it. You've just got to change your processes to, to allow that to happen. Yeah, that's really good advice. That's a great note to finish on. Thanks so much, Charles. Thanks, Rachel. Really appreciate your time. I hope you enjoyed the episode. There are some resources in the show notes you may find interesting. I'll see you next week for another conversation on leadership.